Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening power. Come shed abroad a Savior's love that it may kindle ours. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A pastor friend of mine named uh, Chris had been hearing from his congregation for a long time that they wanted to improve their prayer life. They did lots of things really well as a church, better than most, but they had a discomfort about praying out loud, and several of them had said they really wanted to learn more, and so he did what any self-respecting Presbyterian pastor did and set up a six-week Sunday school course about it. They looked at the origins and the history of prayer. They discussed different kinds of prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving. They broke down the Lord's Prayer. They talked about styles of prayer. They studied prayer throughout the Scripture, and Chris was just sure that he had nailed this Sunday school class. He was confident that they had deepened their prayer life. He was even secretly hoping that some of these members now steeped in prayer would be ready to be elders and deacons, the spiritual leaders of the church. So he got to the last class, and he asked the class if it had been meaningful to them. And many of them raved about what they had heard in the class, what they had learned, how they had a better understanding of prayer now. And then this one kind older gentleman raised his hand and he said, "Um, I know a lot more about prayer now, but there's just one thing. In six weeks, we never prayed. And Chris's eyes got real big. And he realized that he'd left out this most fundamental piece of the whole study, which was to actually do the prayer. Prayer is, after all, a spiritual discipline, a practice, not something that we so much need to learn about as something that we learn by doing it. Fortunately for the Ephesians, the apostle didn't make the same mistake as Chris. The apostle has been going on in Ephesians for several chapters now, as we have followed along the last couple of weeks. He's talked about the power of Christ and his hope for the church, and finally he stops. And instead of imploring them to pray or telling them the right way to pray or explaining to them why prayer is valuable, he simply prays for them. He bows to his knees and asks God for the Spirit to dwell in their hearts. And that prayer that he prays is for the whole church. When we read it in the English, it sounds like a prayer that's for me as an individual, and it is, but only to the extent that we are all a part of the body of Christ. If the apostle had been a southerner, we wouldn't have missed it. We would hear the prayer this way. The apostle prays, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, God may grant that all y'all may be strengthened in your inner being through the power of the Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as y'all are being rooted and grounded in love together. 
I pray that you may have the power to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that y'all may be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit together. The apostle is intentional about his prayer for all of us because he believes that the church is called to be the living temple, the resurrected body of Christ, the holy tabernacle where God dwells in you and in you and in you and in me together. In the Old Testament, God's glory, the fullness of God, as the apostle calls it, resided in the Ark of the Covenant that they carried about, that moved about with the people for years. And ultimately, in the time of King Solomon, God's glory resided in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, as they called it. But the apostles' prayer for the Ephesians, even down to measuring the height and the depth and the length and the breadth, is offering dimensions for a new dwelling place for God. God is no longer confined to the temple, but is alive in us, in the church, in the body of Christ that is living and breathing and resurrected in the world. And that means that his prayer for the church and our prayers taken together take on a whole new life. Prayer becomes the avenue by which God shapes us into agents of transformation. So often, prayer becomes this practice of listing out all the things that are wrong in our life or in the world and asking God to fix it, treating God as a kind of genie that grants our wishes. And I want to be clear that there is something important and really holy about putting our petitions and our needs and our fears before God. But when we expect those to just simply be answered in the way we want, it misunderstands the role of prayer in our life. If our prayers are purely transactional, it can be really easy to look out at the world and feel really jaded. Why pray at all? Why pray when this pandemic rages on? Why pray when injustices against black and brown and women's bodies continue? Why pray if my parents are still getting divorced, or if the bully keeps bugging me at school, or if my neighbor still votes for my enemy, or if my aging loved one is still sick? Why pray if God doesn't answer my prayers? If what we want is a God to do our bidding with the outcomes that we have predetermined in our minds, then you're right, we're bound to be disappointed. All of those requests assume that prayer is transactional. We ask God for something, and God gives us what we want. And if it doesn't turn out the way we want, then prayer must not work. But there's a 17th century rabbi named Leona Medina who once said, if you were standing at the side of the lake and you saw a man pulling a boat to shore, you might think if you misunderstood the mechanics of, and motion of the world, that he was pulling the shore to the boat. But that wouldn't be true. He's pulling the boat to shore. This rabbi says, when people pray, we sometimes make the same mistake. What we think that what we're doing is pulling God to our wishes. But when we pray well, when we pray successfully, what we're doing is pulling ourselves closer to God. 
The apostle writing to us and to the church in Ephesus would agree. He seems to be reminding us that God doesn't work for us, but God does work in and through us. God doesn't work for us, but God works in and through us. Today's prayer reshapes our role in God's work of unveiling the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Prayer isn't simply about asking God for a divine, divine fix-it plan and then washing our hands at the issue. Prayer is an invitation to be pulled closer to that divine source so that we can be moved by Christ to embody the fullness of God in all that we collectively do as the church. When the Apostle Paul looks out at the church, at all y'all, what he sees is the living body of Christ. And he trusts in the transforming power of Christ and says, our prayers are not pointless. They are, in fact, necessary because when we pray, we are the ones being reshaped. We are being drawn closer to God and closer to one another so that God is able to work in and through us. So hear his prayer one more time. His prayer is that all of us are strengthened as the body in our inner being, rooted and grounded in love, with the power to comprehend the love of Christ so that we may be filled with the fullness of God. His prayer is about building a deep spiritual connection with Christ so that all of us together are able to be Christ's hands and feet in the world wherever we are, wherever we go. The prayer draws us so close to God that we would take on the shape of Christ so that Christ, who by the power at work within us, is able to do far more abundantly than we could ask or imagine. So why pray? Because prayer has the power to change us to draw us closer to God, to help us be more Christ-like so that God can use us as agents of transformation, bringing about the kingdom of heaven here on earth. When we are strengthened in our inner being, when we are rooted and grounded in love through prayer, the work of God can simply flow from us in ways that others can see the presence of Christ. Poet Naomi Shihab Nye, who was born of a Palestinian refugee father and a Midwestern Lutheran mom, tells the story about walking through the Albuquerque airport terminal after learning that her flight had been delayed for a number of hours. And she heard one of those muffled announcements on, that comes over the loudspeaker, if anyone is in the vicinity of gate A4, A, A4, and also speaks Arabic, Please come to the gate immediately. Gate A4, Arabic. That was her gate, and that applied to her. So she went, and an older woman in full traditional Palestinian embroidered dress, just like her own grandmother wore, was crumpled on the floor wailing. And the flight agent said, help, talk, talk to her. Naomi said, what, what's the problem? And she said, we told her her flight was going to be late and this. 
So Naomi writes, I, I stooped down to put my arm around her and I spoke haltingly in my very broken and poor Arabic at this point. But the moment she heard any words that she knew, however poorly I spoke them, she stopped crying. She thought the flight had been canceled entirely and she had to be in El Paso the next day for a vital medical procedure. So Naomi said, no, we're fine. You'll get there just late. Who's picking you up? Let's call him. So we called her son, and Naomi spoke with him in English, and she told him that she would stay with her mother until they got on the plane, and she talked to him, and Naomi said, well, we've got time. So we called all of their other sons, all of her other sons, just for the fun of it. And then they called Naomi's dad, and she spoke, the woman spoke to her dad in Arabic for a while and learned that they actually had 10 mutual friends back in Palestine. So then she said, well, just for the heck of it, let's call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her. We've got time to kill. Eventually, she was laughing and telling her about her life and patting her knee and asking Naomi questions. And she pulled out this sack of homemade mamul cookies, little powdered sugar crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts. And she was offering them to all of the women at the gate. And to my amazement, none, not a single traveler declined one, Naomi said. It was like the sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the mom from California, the lovely woman from Laredo, all of us were suddenly covered in the same powdered sugar and smiling. And then the airline broke out the free apple juice and two little girls from the flight ran around serving it and they were covered in powdered sugar too. When I hear stories like this, the generosity, the connection, the communion, that flowed forth in this airport scene, I think of Christ embodied in Naomi, in Palestinian woman, in the friends on the phone, in the recipients of the cookies, and the little girls running around serving apple juice. It was resurrection life unfolding at gate A4 in the airport where fear was conquered by love, where frustration was overcome by compassion, where the gaps between us closed through shared experiences, where cookies and apple juice became a shared sacrament, evidence of Christ's love made known in community. We practice these things so that we know what to do when we are at gate four in the airport. When we come to the table and we say that great prayer, we're invited into that resurrection life where Christ comes among us and is present through us as the body of Christ. The great thanksgiving, that long and irksome prayer that Emma and I will say in a few minutes, it's a way for us to be rooted and grounded in God's story, not just to remember the past, but because we are active participants still today. When we share in the meal, we are being pulled toward the source, toward Christ. And when we've been nourished at the table and strengthened in our inner being, as the apostle says, then God can work in and through us. So what we do here is not simply for us, but is embodying that discipline of prayer so that we can remember and reenact the sacrament 
a meal made holy by Christ's presence when we are out there as the body of Christ in the world. Why pray? Because you never know when we as individuals or as a whole church are the ones that are going to be called to gate A4. But I hope that when the call comes overhead, that we will have been strengthened and rooted and grounded in love so that God can accomplish through us more abundantly than we could ask or imagine. Amen.